my guest today is Prachi Avasti. She's an associate professor of biochemistry and cell biology at Dartmouth University. Her lab studies the formation of cilium and specifically how its assembly is coordinated with other cellular processes. Prachi is also the president of ASAP Bio, a nonprofit organization working to drive open and innovative communication life sciences. Prachi, it's great to have you on today. Great. Thank you so much for asking. So let's just start with the most basic of questions. Um, how exactly did you get interested in, in cytoskeletal assembly and like what's particularly fascinating about it to you? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, sometimes I say that if I had gone into science, you know, a thousand times, like 999 times I would have ended up studying, studying the cytoskeleton. And it's just, uh, you know, I think it's like really fundamentally interesting. It's really easy to understand, you know, it's like the skeleton of the cell, you know, and, and, and really something that's fascinating is that it's really made up of these like, you know, single proteins that can then polymerize into making like a really diverse array of structures and it can support a really diverse array of functions. And so, you know, sort of understanding how like a single protein or like a couple of proteins can work together in this way to, you know, be so dynamic and so, um, you know, uh, sort of specialized in what they do with the, with the uh, sort of coordination with other types of proteins. Um, just that sort of, it's really like an elegant system and something that is really conserved across, um, you know, different types of the cytoskeleton. So it's actually sort of useful, like something that we do is we think about not just one cytoskeletal component, but multiple um, components. And that um, I think has really given us an advantage because we are able to sort of use those common principles to sort of understand different parts of the system. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I, I think that, you know, as long as I've been in studying um, science, I've always really been interested in, um, you know, visualizing the science like microscopy and really, um, you know, and, and when you look at things under the microscope, it, you know, it's really interesting to watch things moving around. And, you know, and when you watch things moving around, it's impossible not to get interested in trafficking, <laughs> which really is like, you know, you know, you know, motors moving around, um, you know, on the cytoskeleton inside cells. So it's sort of, um, I feel like it's one of those things that is really something that's easy to get interested in just by sort of like stumbling upon science, like looking at cells, things like that. So, um, yeah. Gotcha. Cool. So you study a lot of these, um, these components via, um, algae as I understand it. So just at a high level, like what makes them such a great model system to be studying these things? Yeah, yeah. So it really depends on the, the the type of you know cytoskeleton component, like which component you're studying. But you know, one thing I got study really interested in in graduate school is studying a, a structure called the cilium, which is a microtubule-based organelle that's found in you know really virtually every human cell type, but also found across the tree of life. And basically, um, you know, the idea is that this is like a cellular antenna that sticks out from the cell to like sense different kinds of external signals and then have some sort of effect inside the cell. Um, and, um, you know, this is really fundamental across all these different cell types and, and the ways that all of those cilia differ is bit by the kinds of signals that they receive. So, you know, your eyes sense light, your kidneys sense fluid flow. You have all these different types of um, signals that different, you know, tissues and things sense. But it turns out that because this is such a, you know, really evolutionary evolutionarily conserved structure. It's something that was actually present on the last eukaryotic common ancestor. Um, and that is what allows us to study it in simpler organisms like 
the single-celled green alga that we study, uh, Chlamydomonas reinhardii. Um, and this is one of those really, really excellent model systems because it's, um, you know, it's first of all, it's a single cell. It's got two of these cilia that stick up. It actually uses it for swimming and it also uses it for sensing the environment. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of really like fundamental advantages to using this. So besides the fact that they're really easy to grow in the laboratory, um, they have sort of like a, you know, short division cycle. So it allows us to grow a lot of them, um, you know, and they have this unique property in that if you take these cells, you can put a Put them under certain conditions that allow the cilia that stick out from there to to sever right at the base so you can really easily purify the cell body from the from the cilia and this is something that's actually more difficult to do in like almost every other cell type this is one of those things that and it happens naturally in these cells if you put them in low ph or you put them you know even mechanically perturb them in some way they just like pop these things right off and like a very clean way so you can imagine that there's a lot of like biochemical advantages you know you could easily do like proteomics and stuff on these two different compartments and um, it really, um, you know, the other sort of unique advantage is that when, when they pop off like that, then they start to regrow them in this like totally synchronized way. So a hundred, you know, if you pop off these cilia, like a hundred percent of the cells start to regrow them in this like very stereotypical manner. So you can imagine that now you can start to study like how fast they grow and, you know, all of these other properties of these things and how all of these different processes that are required to um, allow them to grow, you can study all of those processes as well. So you know, there's a, there's a lot of different uh, reasons. So, you know, that we study this organism, but it's also had a long history as something where, you know, all of the things that we've discovered about cilia in this organism have, have, you know, panned out and turned out to be true in, in a lot of other systems and, um, you know, even in human cells. So it's really a really well-characterized and well-studied system to study sort of cilia and ciliary assembly and ciliary function. Um, and so, um, and then uh, of course, just having that awesome experimental tractability is, is something you can't beat. So that's something I actually went looking for is in graduate school, I was, um, you know, studying cilia actually in, in, in mammalian cells and mouse photoreceptors. Um, and it turned out that, you know, virtually every paper that I, you know, read to try and understand this system, like everything got like traced back to these algal cells, like all of the fundamental mechanisms that were found were in these, these papers that um, from, you know, decades ago in these algal cells. And so when it came time to decide, you know, what do I want to do my postdoc in, it was pretty clear I wanted to move to a really cool model system where we could understand a lot of these different mechanisms. So that's how I ended up doing that. Cool. So more generally, I guess, like when you're working on a biological problem, how do you decide on a specific model system to use? Because there's like a trade-off between ease of use and information you get. I'm wondering if you could maybe collaborate on that. Yeah. I mean, this is a really big question and it's something that's really interesting. You know, a lot of times we have been, and this is something I'm thinking a lot more about now and thinking about expanding our model organism sort of toolkit or, and expanding also into non-model organisms, um, is really to think about, um, Traditionally, when you are under typical constraints, you know, you want to use things that are, um, that have the types of tools and things that you need, right? So often, if you want to do some experimentation, you want to use a system that is, you know, maybe the genome is sequenced and it's genetically tractable, so you can manipulate the genes in some way, either by, you know, um, you know, knocking things down or knocking things out or, um, you know, things that are really amenable to visualization. So it depends on sort of what kinds of things you're studying and, 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 and where are those processes really um, evident and easy to study in that specific context. So, you know, um, it, you know, but the, the interesting thing is that, you know, when you are choosing model organisms, sometimes, you know, the nice thing to do is to actually have a comparative approach where you actually are able to look at the similarities and differences between different systems and understand, you know, how do the ways in which 
um, those processes behave in the same way or differently? Um, how do they sort of um, correlate with you know, you know, specific functions or characteristics of those different cells. And that can tell you all sorts of other things about the biology, right? Um, and so, you know, you can imagine that when you're choosing those model systems, you know, all sorts of things come into play is, you know, including, you know, generation time, like how long does it take? Because you can imagine there are some systems where it could take you hundreds of days to, you know, to work with this organism or have it divide or something like that versus um, it could be something that has a really quick generation time and then you know, size may be an issue, whether or not, you know, the thing you're studying requires visualization. So sometimes like transparent organisms are things people study really easily visualize them in different parts of their cell, you know, um, life cycle. And so it really is like a case by case basis about what are, what's the question that you're asking and, um, you know, and then what are some advantages that you might need in when studying that biological process. And then, you know, and now that I think about it more across organisms, you know, the question is, you know, are there, are there organisms that do this process particularly well or particularly differently, you know, that can be um, really good handles on studying it. And so there's, there's often, you know, no right answer, but, um, and, but often what people end up doing is saying, okay, well, here's a system in which, um, you know, here are my uh, set of systems in which there are a lot of tools and things available, you know, of these, which ones are the, you know, ones that are best suited for my specific question. Um, and, and now more and more as gene sequencing becomes more affordable and um, it's becoming simpler to apply molecular tools to other, other systems, we're able to make other, you know, model and non-model systems more tractable to study, you know, the, the right question in the right organism. So I also had a question, I guess, about um, just the scientific process itself. I just want to get your thoughts, like as a cell biologist, what have been maybe the most counterintuitive lessons you've learned about just doing science? Like what was maybe considered dogma in terms of doing cell biology 20 years ago? That's no longer like the case maybe. I, you know, I, I, it's not so much, but you know, the funny thing is when you said that, like all of my, my sort of thinking about um, things that have been surprising or, or different have, have, have really come in, in thinking about genetics more so than cell biology. Um, but I'll answer both, both ways actually. So, um, you know, so, you know, one thing that I think about a lot is um, this idea of, you know, the ways in which we manipulate cells in order to see how they work, right? So this is a fundamental cell biology. It's also sort of a genetics problem is, you know, you want to perturb, um, perturb function and then see what happens. And in, in that, you know, in that way, you can sort of understand how genes and proteins and different processes work, right? Um, and so, you know, there are a lot of ways to do that. Some of them are genetic and some of them are chemical. You can put on inhibitors versus, versus um, you know, mutate genes or, or make knockouts or whatever. And, you know, it's sort of interesting because, you know, over the course of, you know, my career, we've used sort of every tool that we have available to us, right? And each tool tells us something a little bit different. And so the, the interesting thing is that, you know, sometimes when you use inhibitors in your work, because maybe your system isn't genetically tractable in the way that you need it to be, or there are really good inhibitors um, for what you're studying, um, you know, there's, there's often a lot of skepticism in the field because, you know, drugs have off targets. And so how do you know that you're really looking at what you think you're looking at? And there's good ways to sort of validate those things. But, you know, it's often a common uh, idea that when you put on inhibitors, you have lots of collateral damage and how do you really know that what you're studying is, is real? And then it's sort of gold standard is thought to be, you know, a, a clean null genetic perturbation to, to sort of put the nail in the coffin of this is actually what this, this gene does. 
But, you know, as we are actually broadening the scope of the kinds of biology we're able to do by, by looking at transcriptomics, like single cell transcriptomics, all of these things, we, we actually are, are finding that, you know, and we found this even before we were, you know, able to do a lot of this sort of omics type work is that, you know, any perturbation has a lot of different effects, right? So when you perturb a gene, often you get compensatory function by a related gene, or, or you have like actually a whole systemic response of, of the cell, um, you know, in response to that single genetic perturbation. So, you know, the idea that, oh, this is like a clean, you know, intervention that you're doing is a little bit of a fallacy, right? Like no matter what you're doing, you're going to have some sort of uh, a sort of a whole systemic response. And so you, you will and ultimately not actually know whether or not, you know, the, the phenotypes that you're seeing are a, are a consequence of that one perturbation or all or one of the many things that you're actually causing by making that perturbation, right? So, you know, in my mind, the, the right thing to actually do is to, to use orthogonal approaches, use more than one approach um, and, and answer those questions. Because if you, if you do this in multiple ways, build some sort of like theoretical model for how you think the system is working and make some predictions on the basis of this model, then you can sort of say, ah, on, on the basis of this, you know, uh, if, if, if what I think is true, then X, Y, Z should also be true or this or you know these two ways um, of doing these experiments should break the model or support the model um, and so um, you know it's one of these things that um, the ways I sort of learned biology have differed from the ways that I've sort of uh, uh, you know discovered it to be through through my own work right um, and so so you know this is a very in, in my mind it's very cell biological biological problem because you know these are this is how we sort of um, probe how cells function. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's sort of one, one, one answer. And, and, you know, from a cell biology perspective, I guess, and this is also another thing is that, you know, as cell biology has gotten, um, more advanced through advanced microscopy, right? So we've gotten really, really good at, um, you know, super resolution microscopy, getting, getting better and better, um, fluorophore is getting better and better resolution in cells from fluorescence microscopy, um, in-situ cryo-electron tomography, like really looking at cells and looking at the molecular level at the structures without um, anything that might influence it, like fixatives and whatever. So, um, you know, so like our ability to visualize cells has become like dramatically improved over, you know, even the course of, you know, the time that I've been um, doing science, you know, and that has been like an absolute, absolute game changer. And it's still surprising to me now, despite all of these advancements, you know, we are making gains in all of these things and using it to inform our science, but we are still doing experiments on cells that were like designed, um, you know, decades ago, like 50 years ago, you know, some of our most important insights have been from like really elegant cell biological experiments from, um, you know, that are much, much simpler than using the latest, greatest technology. I would say like we've ha had as much, if not more insight into biology, um, you know, by, by doing both, you know, by doing the, the sort of um, experiments that we've always had available to us, but just no one has done. Um, we have from using, like pushing the envelope on the technology. So I, I guess I would just uh, sort of make a plug for sort of not abandoning, you know, all of the ways that we have to do science just because something new is available. Right, makes total sense, yeah. So I kind of switch gears a bit and I get into publishing, which, you know, you've spent a lot of energy and uh, work and doing some great stuff in that area. So just first off, like, what do you view as some of the biggest issues with the traditional publishing system as of uh, today? Yeah, I think people 
are the biggest problem. <laughs> you know, I don't know if that's the answer you were expecting, but like, it's, you know, I actually think that we have gotten ourselves um, into this idea of what we need to sort of advance our careers and what we think that means. And I think that in this process, the further we get along, we've sort of normalized this idea that everyone sort of behaves in this way and, you know, writes papers in this way and publishes in a certain way and publishes in certain places and all of these things. And, and, that, and that we somehow have no choice in that matter and what happens there. And in, in that process, I feel like we're getting further and further away from what's actually good for the science, which is really to communicate it in as, as clear of a way as we can, as broad of a way as we can. And actually, you know, all of the expertise on science is wherever it lives. It's not like each individual person holds all of the knowledge and all of the expertise that's needed to, to make the, make that science the best it can be. Right. So it really gets better through discussing with other people. This is sort of the idea behind peer review is getting the, getting people to, you know, um, weigh in on your science, give new perspectives, getting people who work on something different, but overlapping to think about it in different ways and actually shed new light on the subject. And so, you know, that's how science really is, is becomes rigorous and, and better. And we sort of move, further and further away from that in, in, you know, the ways in which we're used to, you know, publishing our science. And, and I think that um, we forget to think about that as, as, as people who are working in the system. And, um, and I think that it, 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 the science, the science suffers. Um, and I think, you know, sort of ultimately even, you know, scientists suffer for doing it this way, but we're sort of used to that sunk cost, you know, like we're used to it. So we don't, minded as much as we mind doing something different, which feels new and hard, you know? Uh, and so I would say that the biggest problem is that we, I think, don't focus enough on trying to um, focus on what's good for science and society as much as we focus on what's good for, you know, careers and CVs. Right, right. So given that, like, what's the vision and behind ASAP Bio, like, what exactly is yeah. the goal of that whole organization? Yeah, the goal is really, as you said, innovation in life sciences publishing. And it really started off as sort of like a preprint advocacy organization. Now we're sort of, you know, expanded into sort of advocating for different um, different things that we think are good for um, the ways in which we communicate science. But, you know, preprints were, you know, obviously something that's really, really uh, huge has completely sh shifted the landscapes, uh, landscape of um, life sciences publishing. Um, you know, uh, BioArchive, for example, started in 2013. Um, it's, you know, many decades after the the uh, physics archive started and had already proven to be successful and it wasn't clear if, you know, could biologists do the same thing? And of course we can, and we did. Um, and, you know, the idea is that, you know, that that work actually sees the light of day when authors are ready for it to be seen um, and not have it, you know, yes, it's, it hasn't been, you know, uh, peer reviewed already in advance. So this is, you know, in some sense, it's not, um, you know, uh, pre-publication review, you publish it first on the on a preprint server, and then it can undergo any other types of scrutiny that you want, whether by also sending it to a journal or by having, you know, public commenting on it. Um, and so really the, the sort of impetus for that is to sort of reclaim power by the authors to say, look, we've we've generated this behemoth of a publishing system in which we um, go through rounds and rounds of review, um, really selecting for not just sound science, but you know, whatever impact is supposed to mean and whatever mechanism is supposed to mean and whatever, you know, um, you know, bar that these different journals want want people to hit and um, and and you know and and people bounce back and forth and go on underground around a review get rejected there, go through another round of review somewhere else. And, you know, in that whole process, just so that it can get that stamp 
of journal approval, you know, which is like a yes or no, you know, that, that can serve as like a proxy for quality. And, and in that way, like people are, you know, there's repeated review and all sorts of problems in the system, right? And so, but and, and all the while in that previous system, the science is not seeing the light of day. Things are getting, you know, long after we have the results and really should be discussing it and finding out ways to make it better, you know, months to years later, it's finally seeing the light of day. And that's, you know, I think a really, really bad, um, it's bad for science, but it's bad uh, and it's bad for the public, you know, to have to wait that long. And it's, um, and, you know, as we know, like science can move much, much faster. The, you know, COVID pandemic has shown us how important it is to make our results <laughs> available soon and have that discussion openly so that everyone can, you know, that we wouldn't have a vaccine if they didn't, if, you know, scientists didn't decide to share it in that way instead of doing it in the conventional system. So the real push base at bio is to rethink um, and revisit this idea of doing what's better for science um, and doing what's better for society and taking back this um, sort of power um, that we've abdicated voluntarily by the way, <laughs> you know, um, to really reclaim that power and, and um, you know, to put things um, available, make it available to the public, have it see the light of day when we as the authors are ready. Mm -hmm. Right, great. Yeah. So on this um, subject of preprints, right now it's a lot more common to be posted in bioarchive. I was wondering, what do you attribute this like rapid cultural change to? Like, how did this happen? It's funny. It depends on who you talk to. It, like it, to me, you know, is it a rapid cultural change? Like, I, yes, it does seem seem like it in my field in cell biology. You know, at some point it became, you know, you'd go to the biggest cell biology conference. Uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the American Society for Cell Biology and the European um, uh, uh, Society are now doing this together. And and just at, at some point, like some year, literally every talk was citing some preprint, you know, and it, it, feel like, it felt like that happened, you know, overnight, you know, pretty much. And so, but so it has been something that has caught on in, in our field pretty well. And, and it is variable across fields, you know, so, you know, the more computational sciences, um, you know, started early and, and had, um, you know, some of them were already used to using the archive. It wasn't that big of a leap to working in, um, to, to, to adopt this in, in a related field. Um, but I think the idea is that, you know, there are so many advantages, right? So I think one of the things that, um, you know, th there were some key key structural moments, like at some point, um, I think it was 2017, the NIH um, changed its policy to actually allow preprints everywhere where, um, you know, other research works were cited in grant applications. So things like, you know, incentives like that from funders made a difference. I think that is one of the ways in which we've really persuaded people that, look, you know, if you want to demonstrate that you've been productive and that's why you should be funded. You know, it's a, rather than waiting months to years before that eventually makes it through peer review, you know, really what people are looking to do is whether or not you are actually have completed this work. And, you know, it's, it, it's not that, you know, peer review is the be all and end all of, of, you know, of quality, you know, like, yes, people have looked at it, but, um, you know, it, science is a living, breathing body of work and, and we, there's reliable and unreliable stuff in both the peer reviewed and non-peer reviewed literature. Um, and so it's, um, you know, when people saw like, oh, I can, I can use this as evidence of productivity for grants for, um, you know, for moving along in one's career where you can now, you know, use preprints and, and have something to show when you go on the job market for whatever job you want next, right? Instead of having, you know, nothing to show or saying something is submitted and no one can read it. <laughs> you know, like there's sort of a, you know, it's sort of self-evident. The reason why I'm even 
you know, thinking or working in this space is because it was so clear to me all of the advantages, right? To just actually be able to talk about your data and like, you know, with your colleagues, give them something to read instead of just like flashing it before their eyes in front of a talk or a poster or something like that, to actually give them something that they could give you legitimate feedback on, you know? Um, you know, and when I started my lab, it was sort of just catching on and it was so clear to me that this was a better way to do science that, um, you know, I couldn't, like shut up about it. I had to tell everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? so, and now here I am evangelizing the whole world always about, you know, why, why this is a good idea. But I think part of it is that it's self-evident. And this is, um, you know, you typically when people post preprints, they never sort of go back. I, and there's so many things like positive experiences that people have, um, you know, when you, where you post a preprint, other collaborators see it, they offer up reagents, you get talks from it, you know, it just, it's great for visibility. It's great for open discussion. It's, um, you know, uh, there's just, I feel like it is it's self-evident that um you know having some transparency and the sharing data early can really make it stronger and better and 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 you know it shouldn't be discounted it's also way more fun to do science right. <laughs> you know? yeah definitely definitely yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so i also wanted to kind of get into like uh, reviews now so you know you're also on the director of e-life and one thing i love about e-life is that you post the reviewer comments and that gives you a ton of information about the paper, sometimes even more than the paper itself. Yes. Um, like, why haven't more journals done this? Do you think eventually- I would like to know the answer to that question. Okay. I would like okay. to know the answer to that question. So, you know, so, so eLife has done this from its inception, inception actually, is to post it, its reviews next to its papers. That it's done forever. Now, the new thing that we were starting to do is to actually post um, not just the reviews for the accepted papers, because as you can imagine, that that's really not that useful. Like, you know what happens when you finally get your paper accepted. Okay. Well, the reviews are pretty good. You know, like they've accepted the paper, right? Yeah. What's really useful, right, is because the the idea is that you want you want people to know, you know, where the you know the whole purpose of having that, like what people think about this work is to, is to actually look at, you know, what should we be paying attention to? What needs to get better in the data, right? Um, and so so what we've done now is to a just go to reviewing preprints exclusively, right? So rather than just hold us ourselves holding back and um, preventing, you know, data from seeing the light of day. Now we, we sort of have everyone who submits anything to ELEV has to um, submit a preprint or we can deposit the preprint. Um, and then, um, and then after review, um, a version of the review that is actually more, you know, concise and useful to the audience and is like, you know, um, sort of edited for this utility is, is, is posted um, whether or not the paper gets accepted. And so now it's actually undergone peer review. It's a peer reviewed preprint, right? <laughs> like, yeah. And this is now something that it's, and we post it back, um, you know, either at the time, if that's what authors want, or eventually when it gets published later somewhere else, we can post it. But the idea is to basically make that available. People can take those and take that existing review and take it somewhere else. So now they can avoid like this rounds and rounds and rounds of secret review. Like you have those reviews to take with you. Right. And also, you know, you have, it's been peer reviewed. And so the audience importantly knows, you know, ha has some context for this work, right? So, I mean, I think this is a better way to do science. It's actually, you know, it's post-publication review. It's really um, something that I wish, you know, every every journal would do. And really, I, I and it's one of those things that we're also pushing forward, um, you know, with our collaboration with, with EMBO um, in Review Commons is to basically also generate refereed preprints, um, you know? And so I think, you know, this is where the ecosystem is moving. I think it really is, you know, letting authors control when things see the light of day, 
adding a layer of commenting or peer review on top of that to help give context um, to give people what they want in the, in the peer review system, but not have this sort of gatekeeping function, right? Where we're sort of just, you know, haggling for this hierarchy of journals that, um, you know, as, as just some sort of substitute or proxy for, for what we really want to know, which is, you know, the, the um, you know, what is of interest and what is um, sound science and all of these things. Um, but I, I, you know, the, the question of your original question was why don't more journals do this i have the same question <laughs> you know and I, I think you know and i think they wanted to stay relevant you know i think it's really important to sort of keep up with the with the culture and the times and what what is it that people actually want um and um and i think that that um the ecosystem is definitely moving in this direction where where we want to have you know preprints and then have um or you know and public public comments on that to to help contextualize it and you know, maybe one day, maybe one day that's that that will be that will be what it is, and um, and and different layers of curation that can be done on, on you know on by various entities that, that can be overlapping. You know, more than one journal could say, "Hey, I thought this 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 work was good," you know, or worth reading or whatever. Or, you know, I do that a lot of this too. I also you know curate preprints that I think are interesting and make lists of things that you know I send out. You know, this is what I read this week, and here's why I thought it was cool. <laughs> you know. So I also wanted to get your thoughts on um, crowdsourced peer review. Like, do you think that can be a effective and be um, actually like incentivized? Like, do you think it's like, yeah? Feasible? So we are. So I don't know um, if you're asking this because we just launched a crowdsourced trial <laughs> at ASAP Bio, but um, we we are just trying to pilot this type of experiment where we actually have a large number of people collected in a certain field um, where we can try and see like, okay, um, let's get these preprints through um, where where many, many people can start commenting and then we can start aggregating those comments and then provide those back to the authors. So um, if you um, look now, I, uh, we have a, a version of a crowdsourced preprint in which um, this seemed to work really well and we got author comments back where they um, you know, even read those comments and addressed all of those points as if they had um, you know, just gotten a typical peer review, but all of it is actually visible and available. So there's so much context there. It's really, um, you know, interesting to read that. And, and, and it's sort of nice when you're, um, you know, if it's, this is in my field, it's a, it's a cell biology paper, but, but there's, you know, if you're in looking at something that's outside your field and maybe you don't have the expertise to necessarily like review it. <laughs> um, it's really nice to see what, as you said, like um, it's nice to see what experts have thought about it. Right. Um, and I, and I do think it can work because I think that right now we are really, really, really not taking advantage of the large pool of of people who are willing and interested to review, right? Um, you know, I think right now we not only are we gatekeeping papers, but we're gatekeeping who's allowed to review them, right? Um, and the truth is, is there's a ton of you know really outstanding scientists in labs that are actually doing experiments, students and postdocs that are you know have a ton of insight and actually like more relevant insight into into papers and are probably able to catch more things um, for that reason because they're so proximal to the work, right? Um, that, they are, that they are typically not asked or, or um, you know, included in this opportunity to review, which they are eager to do, I think, and are interested in doing, and just typically are not, a lot, are not given those opportunities. And so I do think that, that this sort of crowdsourcing is something that, that, can, um, that can work. And that's one of the things that we're trying to see in this, in this trial, this crowdsourcing trial that ASAP Bio is running, um, uh, to sort of do a proof of principles and see what's working, what's not. Is this something that, can we get people and you know, enough people to, to do this? Um, 
you know, th th those are legitimate questions that remain to be be answered. Um, but I do think that there is is interest. And I think that is why it's sort of funny when you hear a lot of editors saying, like, oh, can't find reviewers. I'm on my 47th request or whatever, and it's been rejected. Let's go you're asking the same eight people or whatever. You know, like, you know, it's just like if you if you actually <laughs> made it available and um, you know, and then the editors would can do what editors do, which is like make judgment calls on the basis of those reviews. It's not like they have to get passed on exactly, you know, as is. I think it's 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 a system that that can work if we expand it out and um, letting people sort of you know doing um, sort of crowdsource review if there's sort of a way to distill it. I think, you know, you want, you want to have some signal from the noise, like you don't want to just have like 10,000 comments, because um, that's, you know, you can imagine that's a little bit difficult to, to wade through, but having some consolidation, a lot of people are going to have the same ideas, you can imagine a lot of different ways to do that. So I think that it is something that they can, that can work, I think that there is probably interest in it. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of, you know, the answers on how well and efficiently it can work and what you know, what fraction of the literature can it cover? All of these things, these are these are sort of important questions that we're trying to answer by doing these kinds of trials. Cool. So uh, last question for you. Um, do you think we can get away without having journals? I'm just gonna ask that point blank. <laughs> uh, I, I, so I, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> um, and in fact, I, you know, uh, I started a new endeavor in which we are going to do exactly that. <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, now starting a new um, research institute in which we are not publishing in journals. Um, and so this is something that, um, because I actually believe in this idea that having this open communication um, is something that is really uh, good for science. It's something that we can do. It's something that can actually um, make the science go faster and, and be more rigorous in all of these ways. You know, I think that there's right now the way, you know, academic you know, structures work. A lot of our, the ways we decide things are based on how journals behave. And I think that's changing. It's, you know, it's, is it, can we say how everyone will react to those things? No. Right. Um, but, you know, not that many years ago, like it wasn't that common to see preprints in, in CVs. Right. And now it's almost a guarantee that, that job applicants for faculty jobs, for job applicants for postdocs, um, it's almost a guarantee now there will be at least some preprints because those are, it's better to, you know, to have those rather than just a line that says submitted, you know. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's not that this is, it's, impossible to change those things, right? And for us, when we're thinking about doing this in sort of outside a journal system, you know, what would a CV look like? So instead of saying, you know, okay, here's journal name, journal name, journal name, journal name, or, you know, preprint, 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 um, you know, we would have like, this is where the data lives. This is the contribution to the data, which is really the thing that people actually want out of that information, right? Like, you know, what you want, you know, yeah, we use these like journal names as proxies for what that actually means. But, you know, actually saying this is the, this is the piece of work and here are, you know, other, maybe other metrics that might be interesting to people like this many, you know, people use this or, or cited this or whatever, um, you know, something that actually was influential and useful to people for doing their own science, you know, um, that, that's what people, that's what we really, like, what do we really want to know when we contribute to something, right? And when we, when we do those evaluation processes, I think we can get closer to that thing, right? Like get closer to the actual attributes that we're looking for rather than, you know, using those proxies. Is it going to be easy? No. Do I think this is going to just like happen tomorrow and the thing's going to collapse? No. But it's one of the reasons to do these different kinds of experiments. We've shown, I think, that, you know, preprints are a really great example that there's been like a huge, massive shift. 
in this direction. It looks very different. I can tell you right now that people, when when this was getting up and off the ground for life sciences, I can tell you that people said, this will never work. It's not peer reviewed. No one's ever going to count it or look at it or whatever. And things are changing. Like this is, it is absolutely the case that it, um, you know, that it matters to people, whether something exists as a preprint or not versus just not at all, even if it's, you know, submitted in preparation or whatever, you know, <laughs> what other, whatever other things. So I believe that we have the uh, capacity to change. I'll just leave it at that. Excellent. Okay. So on that optimistic note, uh, Prachi, it's great talking to you. Thanks for uh, doing this. Yep, absolutely. Thanks so much.